0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So today we're going to talk about the rom-com, and the rom-com is got to be maybe the most persistent movie format, if that's the right word, in the history of film. Obviously, it has its roots in literature, uh, but yes, we like to see people who meet cute, who maybe seem averse to one another at first, or fall in love, and then some gigantic problem crops up, like somebody hasn't told somebody something really important that comes out. You know the form, and you probably have immediately in your mind four or five rom-coms that you really love. There are certain people who become as actors almost franchise leaders. You know, people like Hugh Grant, or Cary Grant for that matter, or Meg Ryan. You know the list, the all-star team. Anyway, we'll be talking a lot about rom-coms in the next hour. movies to dream, right? And one of the things that we dream about at the movies is love. We see stories that tell us not only about love and make us laugh about love. They kind of tell us a little bit about what love could be. And I think that's one of the reasons we love rom-coms. And also why everybody has opinions about rom-coms. I put up something on Facebook asking... You know, people for their favorite rom-coms, that kind of thing. Just sort of an open-ended thread. In three and a half or four hours, it had 117 comments and people very passionately declaiming uh, on the parts of various movies that they care about. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, We're going to get started with the author of From Hollywood with Love, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of the romantic comedy that is Scott Meslow. Welcome to our show, sir. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I guess we have to begin by defining our terms because, in fact, you will find substantial arguments about what is a rom-com. I mean, I think we know that Anna Karenina is not a rom-com. But beyond that, it's sort of I'm amazed at the number of things (laughs) that people on Facebook, for example, thought were rom-coms. So give us a working definition here
2: yeah that was certainly one of the first things i had to figure out and you know when you're writing a book about rom-coms people love to tell you about it and they'll say my favorite's the notebook or something and it's (laughs) not necessarily an accurate answer you have to very gently say well that's not necessarily covered in the book so for me as i was figuring out the movies to cover in the book it became a pretty straightforward test um suggested of all things by the director of how to lose a guy in 10 days guy named donald petrie he said basically if you look at a movie with a love story if you pull that love story out is there still a movie and if the answer to that question is yes, then it is not a romantic comedy.
1: Right. So and we'll get to some that kind of play around with that question, too, I, I think, because, first of all, I think it's a great test. I mean, I think we have to back up and say, and one of the reasons The Notebook fails is it fails on the other score. I mean, in other words, the movie has to be romantic and it has to be funny, yes. or hence the term romantic comedy. So, So The Notebook is not funny. So it's not a romantic comedy
2: some jokes but that ending uh yeah when someone is dying of alzheimer's at the end it's hard to call that a laugh riot
1: right it does have kissing in the rain and we may come to that because kissing in the rain is obviously a pretty key trope here okay so we've got a definition but and we'll talk about some specific examples that might kind of strain against it in certain ways i mean we're going to talk a a bit specifically about john cusack but You know, you you deal in the book with the question of whether Gross Point Blank would be a rom-com. I mean, it is very much about the love between Martin and Debbie, but it's also the driving force of it probably is not the love story.
2: Yeah, except maybe it is i mean that's one of those movies that's sort of on the line where if you look at that martin blank character who is by john cusack's own testimony supposed to be a sociopath all he really cares about is debbie newberry <laughs> like he the reason that he takes that job you know and, and why he goes back and bothers her at her radio station and all that is because he left this girl at prom and he's always regretted it so it's it's still there it's just there's a lot of bloodshed in between
1: so let's start where you start your, your book starts in 1989 and it starts very specifically with this movie. You know, I'm so glad I never got involved with you. I just would have ended up being some woman you had to get up out of bed and leave at three o'clock in the morning and go clean your andirons. And you don't even have a fireplace. Not that
2: I would know this. Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You
0: are a human affront to all women and I am a woman.
2: Hey, I don't feel great about this, but I don't hear anyone complaining.
0: Of course not, you're out the door too fast.
2: I think they have an okay time. How do you know? I mean, how do I know I know?
3: Because they... Yes, because they... How
1: do you know that they're really...
3: What are you saying, that they fake orgasm?
1: It's possible. Get out of Why? Most women at one time or another have faked it.
2: Well, they haven't faked it with me. How do you know? Because I know.
1: Oh.
3: Right. That's right. I forgot. You're a man. What does
1: that
0: supposed to mean? Nothing. It's just that all men are sure it never happened to them, and most women at one time or another
2: have done it, so you do the math.
1: So, Scott Mislow, why start there? Uh, Why pick this movie? Why pick that year?
2: There were a few reasons for that. First and foremost, it felt to me like there was something really interesting about rom-com specifically in the 90s, that, you know, this is a genre that goes back to Shakespeare's time, but... If you look at what that movie was doing, the rom-coms of the 80s were really stuff like Woody Allen, James L. Brooks. It was a little more, had a little more of the independent flair, a little more a um, little more grounded and earthy. Um, and I felt like when Harry Met Sally, in addition to, you know, launching Nora Ephron's rom-com career, and she was undoubtedly the godmother of rom-coms then and now, I think there was something about taking that sort of, you know, that movie's sort of almost an unacknowledged remake of Annie Hall. But it has this big Hollywood ending where where Annie Hall has this sort of wistful, melancholy ending, which is actually what they originally intended for When Harry Met Sally. Everyone remembers the When Harry Met Sally ending, where it's running through the streets on New Year's Eve and, you know, gives the big speech and happily ever after. And I think that that blend of tones... Really defined what rom coms were going to be going forward and have been for the past thirty years.
1: So when Harry met Sally is really interesting on a number of levels, and I don't think it's that stark a demarcation. But it's a movie. I mean, you know, if we think of I don't know, it happened one night is maybe the ultimate Tigris and Euphrates uh, of, of rom coms. You know, from rom coms of that period, sex was mentioned glancingly, if at all, or by implication, if at all. So by 1989, we have when Harry met Sally, which is very much about sex, but I mean, really, it's also about a guy, the somewhat unlikely persona of Billy Crystal, who's just having a lot of sex, but not all that happy about it. And, and in a way, I think that's the beginning. I don't know if it's the beginning, but it, it's starting to incorporate into the notion of romance, some pretty frank talk about sex.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And it's, it, it's funny because it's taken for granted now that that, you know, that, famous, you know, the faked orgasm scene is this beloved comedy classic, but that was... Meg Ryan had a hard time filming it. They were very nervous when they screened it for Princess Diana, who kind of had to privately laugh about it. <laughs> like, it was a different era when that movie came out, even then. It was part of what made that movie hit the way it did was the frankness shocked people and, and you know that scene is in the movie because Rob Reiner didn't know that women fake orgasms that was something Nora Ephron had to tell him
1: right and it's uh, I loved your whole little sidebar on that and that that you know all day long Ryan couldn't really even though she had suggested doing it she couldn't quite get herself to that point and at one point Rob Reiner forgetting that his mother was on the set and in fact in the scene and delivering the incredibly famous button line he, he went out and did his own performance performance, apparently, of, of what he wanted Meg Ryan to do.
2: Uh, I wish that footage still existed. I'd love to see
1: it. Yeah. You know, and I think there's a couple of other things worth talking about. Well, there's many things worth talking about in connection with When Harry Met Sally. I mean, it is, you know, joking aside, there's a pretty steep fall off from Clark Gable and Cary Grant to Billy Crystal, in the you know, at, at the heartthrob level, right? I mean. I mean, Billy Crystal isn't necessarily the guy you think of as, you know, making some woman's heart go pit-a-pat, pit-a-pat. And maybe that's also a th- a sea change that's happening right around that time. Our idea of a leading man for that kind of thing. Obviously, there was Annie Hall, so, so there was Annie <laughs> yeah. Hall. But maybe that's changing too.
2: Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing to talk about. Uh, because at the same time, you know, Pretty Woman not long after, Richard Gere is very much more in the mm-hmm. classic kind of rom-com star vein. And then Shortly after that, you have Hugh Grant, who was, you know, the defining male star of rom coms in the era, I would argue, who's, you know, that kind of stammering but floppy haired, you know, bright-eyed dreamer. I think that became that kind of became the defining male archetype for rom-coms. But I think it's always kind of shifting. You know what Billy Crystal brings to the table is he's very funny. He just yeah. is. You know, and that's charming in its own right. Clearly it works on Sally.
1: Yeah, you know, you mentioning um Woody Allen and Annie Hall and James Brooks. I mean, as you're as you're suggesting, right before that, we were getting movies that were romantic and funny, but they were quite frequently distinguished with the ultimate failure of the romance. It's not just Annie Hall, it's also broadcast news. I saw a variety list that listed broadcast news as its number one romantic comedy of all time. And I'm thinking, because that's sort of odd because everybody winds up kind of empty-handed romantically at the end of that movie.
3: I've never seen you like this with anybody, so don't get me wrong when I tell you that Tom... While well, being a very nice guy is the devil.
0: This isn't friendship. You're crazy, you know that? What do you think the devil's gonna look like if he's around? God. Come on, no one's gonna be
3: taken in by a guy with a long, red pointy tail.
0: Come on, what's he gonna sound like?
3: <sighs> no. I'm semi-serious here.
0: You're serious? He you- will be
3: attractive. He'll be nice and helpful. He'll get a job where he influences a great God-fearing nation. He'll never do an evil thing. He'll never deliberately hurt a living thing. He'll just bit by little bit lower our standards where they're important. Just a tiny little bit. Just coax along, flash over substance. Just a tiny little bit.
1: And he'll get all the great women. Which, I mean, do you consider Annie Hall and or broadcast news to be rom-coms?
2: I think they are. Uh, my working definition does not require people to be together at the end of a rom com for it to be a rom com. You know, one of the movies that I cover in the book is My Best Friend's Wedding, which mm-hmm. is pointedly about her not ending up with the guy. But certainly, I think there's a more of a that that kind of wistful, melancholy thing uh, was much more characteristic of the rom-coms that came before the ones I'm covering in the book.
1: All right. So let's make that transition to Richard Curtis and to Four Weddings and a Funeral and to Love Actually. And I mean, at a certain point, Richard Curtis, this British first screenwriter, then director, but also continues to do screenwriting, wrote the screenplay for Notting Hill. I don't think he directed it. So here's this guy. He really kind of does emerge alongside Nora Ephron. If there's somebody across the ocean who's not a woman, who's Nora Ephron, it's Richard Curtis. He's he's starting to figure this stuff out. And Four Weddings and a Funeral, I do think, is a marvelous, marvelous movie. And it's also, as you detail in so many of your accounts, the story of any really good movie, the backstory is always things that could have gone wrong. You know, they almost didn't cast Tim Allen in Galaxy Quest, and they almost didn't cast Hugh Grant. Only one of three people who mattered wanted to use Hugh Grant in Four Weddings and a Funeral.
2: Yes, and Richard Curtis certainly did not. He he voted vehemently against, in part because he really saw that character as his on-screen avatar. And I think Richard Curtis seems like a perfectly lovely and handsome man, but he thought Hugh Grant was much too handsome for the role. He'd really pictured sort of an awkward nerd and the guy who wouldn't normally get the girl being the one who would anchor this rom-com and that's what would make it special. And so he was really resistant to the idea of handsome, charming Hugh Grant, even if Hugh Grant is doing essentially a Richard Curtis caricature. But he was overruled. And I I think he, to his great credit, Richard Curtis has since said a thousand times that he was an idiot and Hugh Grant was the only guy who could have done it. And certainly that's how it worked out.
1: Right. And I think Four Weddings is an interesting case in, in a lot of different ways. And yes, I mean, Hugh Grant brings to it that kind of shambling, you know, offhanded, stammering, blinking charm that we (laughs) then followed him around and made it almost impossible for him to be anything else for a while. But but I think there's so much more going on there, and I think one of the reasons – A certain group of people like it is, it's very smart. I mean, so is When Harry Met Sally in its own particular way. But, you know, to have a rom-com where the funeral, you know, is one half of a gay couple and the other half is up there eulogizing him and and doing this tremendous reading of the Auden poem. He was my north, my south, my east and west, my working week and my Sunday rest. My noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. Suddenly, you know, you really kind of are in a slightly different place here. You're kind of invited into a world of people who think and read and talk a certain way. And to me, that's some of the charm of the movie.
2: Absolutely, and, and that was how it was explicitly marketed at the time and described. You know, it was this kind of underground hit. It was like, oh, here's the rom com for the Seinfeld crowd, like the people who think they are too good for rom coms, who think the genre is too corny, too cliched for them. This is the one that's drawing them in, and I, and I think for a good reason. You've, you, if you look at what Richard Curtis does well, my favorite thing probably about him as a rom com writer and eventually director is that he's really generous to his supporting characters. He really everything feels fleshed out in a way that. These kind of cursory roles. I mean, there's this wonderful subplot with the Christmas Scott Thomas character who just sort of casually and tragically confesses that she's been in love with Hugh Grant the whole time. And I don't think most other filmmakers would have bothered with like, you know, the the, kind of the fifth character you recognize in the movie to have a moment like that. But I think to me, it's the most beautiful moment in the film.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad that you're saying that, Scott, because one of the things that I thought about reading your book is – The incredible value and probably underappreciated qualities of second, third and fourth bananas. You know, I mean, when Harry Metalli is great for a lot of different reasons. But Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby are not small reasons why it's great. They they're almost this kind of Greek chorus. that's kind of talking about what's going on while the protagonists are going on. Uh, And and of course, they're very funny and engaging and and terrific. There's, you know, the American president, which a lot of people on Facebook apparently think is a really great rom-com. Fox, you take him out of the movie, it's nowhere near as watchable. Boy, I hate doing that. She was trying on dresses.
3: I tell any girl I'm going out with to assume that all plans are soft until she receives confirmation from me 30 minutes beforehand. And they find this romantic?
1: Well, I say it with a great deal of charm. And certainly four weddings and a funeral. Simon Callow, Kristen Scott Thomas, all these people, you know, it really is, I think, almost an ensemble piece.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, the cast is absurd, and in some ways it's even though it's, I think, correctly now recognized and certainly described in my book as a rom-com classic, I think you can make a case that it's also kind of a friendship ensemble type movie with a big romantic subplot at the heart of it.
1: Right. So... If we're going to talk about fabulous casts and ensemble pieces and Richard Curtis, we're going to transition pretty quickly to Love Actually, which, you know, it's really interesting. I hadn't quite grasped this until reading your book, but Love Actually and Something's Got to Give not only came out at the same time, but were kind of competing at the Christmas box office that year. That's kind of like two pretty iconic modern rom-coms, you know, fighting it out. But the the first question is, is Love Actually— a rom-com or is it some kind of huge stacked up collage version of a lot of different kinds of ideas?
2: I think it's a rom-com, but it's a deeply strange one. You know, it's one that originated with Richard Curtis being who he is and just loving love stories and wanting to make movies about love, deciding he's going to fit every kind of love story he can think of into a single movie. You know, he was very much inspired by Robert Altman and Pulp Fiction and just thought, what if we make love the organizing principle, which is where you get you know, relatively conventional sort of cutesy rom-com setups, like the the thing with Colin Firth and the almost like a lost in translation love story there, quite literally. And then you get weird stuff, you know, where it's like, it's an aging rocker and his manager who's his best friend getting drunk on Christmas. And that's a love between friends. Or you have the extremely tragic love story that you get when it's Emma Thompson's character realizing her husband's having an affair that is pointedly unresolved at the end of the movie. It's just this kind of sad note, but that's another kind of love. And that's, that's kind of Richard Curtis in a nutshell. He's He wants to do it all.
1: Right. And you, you failed to mention the prime minister who's in love with somebody he's not supposed to be in love with, somebody who works for him. One of the many arguments we could possibly touch off here is whether Hugh Grant's dancing in the mansion scene is better than Tom Cruise's dancing scene in risky business, but they're both sort of great dancing alone in the house kinds of things. But yeah, once again, we get Hugh Grant's kind of offhand charm kind of anchoring the middle part of it and and I think another thing that Curtis does. Tell me what you think about this. And you can see it a little bit in Four Weddings, and you can see it a lot in Love Actually. Is There's a sort of self-consciousness about the fact that this is a rom-com. <laughs> you know, we are trafficking in certain kinds of tropes and idioms that are pretty familiar to people, uh, and we— Even the sort of the joke at the end of Four Weddings and a Funeral where you sort of see the after stories of the characters and it turns out that poor Lovelore and Kristen Scott Thomas has hooked up with Prince Charles. You know, there's sort of a sense, well, that's sort of a joke almost about that that almost sits outside the movie somewhere. It's not really true within the probability of the movie. It's more of a joke about love. And it seems to me that love actually, although it's quite serious about love, also seems to have almost a kind of postmodern awareness of what it's doing.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think Richard Curtis has always had that. I think one thing that would have changed the way that movie has been interpreted dramatically is the Rowan Atkinson character. It was cut, but was originally intended to be revealed as an angel, sort of like manipulating the events around Christmas to make sure everyone got what they wanted, which is why he like distracts the security at the airport so the kid can run through. And I think that that sort of heightened awareness of the genre. I think that's Richard Curtis is very... Actively playing with them.
1: <laughs> I'm so glad they didn't make him an angel. A little on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love. Is but the work of a minute when, when he's yeah. uh, wrapping up the resin. And, you know, that brings up writing, too. I think it's no coincidence that we've started out our conversation with Nora Ephron, writer first, director second, and Richard Curtis, writer first, director second. These movies are distinguished by really good writing. They have great casts, and occasionally, once in a while, something gets improv It turns out, you know, even in a Nora Ephron movie, Rita Wilson can pull off a little bit of improv. You have to read Scott's book to find out what I'm talking about. But, The writing here is really terrific, you know, and I've never quite understood, maybe you could explain this to me, why people get so excited about the Notting Hill, I'm just a girl speech.
3: The fame thing isn't really real, you know. And don't forget, I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy. Asking
1: him to love her. I think that's like one of Richard Curtis's lesser lines. I mean, I think even the sign that Andrew Lincoln holds up in Love Actually, where he's talking about his wasted heart and all that, you know, to me, you are perfect. That's like better writing than this. But these are both very sharp writers. No question. Yeah, that that
2: Notting Hill scene, I think it's so iconic because it was just Julia Roberts at the exact right moment. Mm. and that character is such a thinly disguised Julia Roberts analog. I, they might as well have just called her Julia Roberts and saved everyone the trouble. But the broader point on writing, I I think that's true. And I think it threads all the way through. I mean, it, to some degrees, it almost sounds like an obvious point. Like of course a good script is going to lead to a good movie, but I think there's something about romantic comedies that really requires that tightness. I mean, especially if you get into the things that are a little more repartee heavy, it's, it's certainly why I think Nancy Myers is the other great rom-com writer director of this era. Uh, she, you know, doing stuff like Something's Gotta Give in The Holiday, she really has a voice and she really knows her characters and to the point that when she's writing the script, she knows exactly which, which actors she wants to do them. And if she can't get the exact actors, it's a problem. And she either tries to convince them endlessly or very reluctantly takes a substitute. I think that kind of totality of vision in the writing carries through the movies in many cases.
1: Yeah, and I think also the difference between a gem and a clunker is a very fine line. It's like Twain saying, you know, the difference between the right word and the wrong word is the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. I mean, I was in, I was interested in your book to find out that when Andy McDowell in Four Weddings and a Funeral says, Is it still raining? I hadn't noticed. People think lie. that's bad writing and they even kind of rocky horror picture show it and in viewing sometimes kind of yell it out derisively along with her
2: yeah and i'm very much on the side of the performance is what doesn't quite sell it there i think she is pretty clearly being ironic to some degree that's also a flaw of that script a movie that i again i i quite like but it's she's a little bit of a cipher by by definition in that movie the structure yes. of the movie is so strange that she has this whole arc that unfolds off screen where she falls in love with someone or you know at least consents to marry him and then decides to split it all up and we only get that through weddings at from hugh grant's perspective so it's hard to read exactly what's going on with her at any point and if we knew her better it might be easier to understand that she's making a joke we just haven't really seen her make one
1: right and i mean annie mcdowell somebody who had a grow a long time as an actor anyway. I mean, famously, her lines in Greystoke were, I think, looped by Glenn Close because her readings of them were so tinny. So, I mean, it may take her a while before she... I mean, when you start adding up her iconic rom-com roles, it really is she's kind of quite a force. But it may have been kind of early on and and maybe not doing such a great job. And as you say, in your book, Richard Curtis admits he hadn't really thought out that character all that well. You know, he himself hadn't maybe put enough flesh on its bones. So we're talking as two movie appreciators about this genre. There's a way in which it's a little bit of a stepchild, though, right? I mean, just in terms of how many Oscar nominations come through, although it happened one night, I want to point out, I think it had all five of the possible major Oscars and that only One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Silence of the Lambs are the only other two movies to do that. But there's right. a way in which the rom-com is sort of like, ah, oh, well, this is something to pass the time in a very endearing way but is it serious art can you just talk about that a bit
2: yeah I mean that's always a problem with comedies in general they're just sort of devalued in principle even though I I think there's if anything it can be very it can be very hard to make a great comedy you know great script great performances it takes zippy editing but I think rom-coms in particular I mean you can't you can't tell the history of this genre without talking about like sexism in Hollywood and sexism in film criticism. It's just how it was and how it is to a degree. I would like to think things are getting some better. Certainly, we're in an era where rom coms broadly seem to get more attention and more respect when a good one comes out. But yeah, I think I think there's this perception that these movies that are so light and bubbly and fun are easy to make. I think they're pretty clearly not. And then on top of that, they're movies that especially in the era that I cover in the book were mostly marketed to women, often made by women at a time when that was less common in Hollywood. And film critics tended to be men, white men. Audiences clearly responded to them, but it, but they were just often getting devalued. And as, as I point out in the book, a lot of the rom-coms that we think of as the ones that kind of broke through and got Oscar nominations, what a coincidence that they happen to be the ones that center a male protagonist's point of view. But that's, that's how it's been from Four Weddings and a Funeral to... Silver Linings Playbook to As Good As It Gets. It's it's just one of those things and it, it makes you think when you start to look at the pattern.
1: So since we're talking about that, we should talk about Nancy Myers. I love some of the stuff that's in the book. I love the fact that for Something's Gotta Give, Diane Keaton believed that there was no way in the world that Jack Nicholson I mean, she knows pretty well was going to do something like this, and not only does he agree immediately, but then he has—you have, have this whole scene where he and Nancy Myers get together for dinner, and he's going to go through the script with this little golf pencil and fix things and show her things that are wrong, and then he kind of admits he doesn't have anything.
2: Yeah, very unusually for him. I mean, that's and, and it, that's true across the board. You know, Keanu Reeves called it the best script he'd ever read. You know, it's that was one of those movies that. Nancy Myers had it in her mind. It was it was based on an experience she had herself after being divorced and having a, you know, difficult relationship. And she kind of poured it into the script, knowing that Diane Keaton and Jack Nicholson, that's who it's gonna be. The rest will figure out. And they did, and it took a long time. But uh, but yeah, I mean, if you wanna again, if we talk about movies, movies that maybe don't get the respect they deserve, that's an auteur film. I mean, that that is a film where she controlled every aspect of the production. She had a very specific vision in mind. It was very difficult to get the film there, but the results speak for themselves.
1: I think it's also you know, and, and I, I I haven't thought long and hard about its precursors and stuff, but it, it's a movie that also suggests that love for love and sex for people who are getting on in years who might actually be having heart attacks and wondering how soon after a heart attack they can have sex again. And I mean, there's like a whole bunch of things in there that are very recognizable to me as a baby boomer, you know that that I haven't seen that much in rom coms.
2: Oh yeah, no question, and it's. Again, Nancy Myers was kind of the only person who was making it at the Hollywood level who could make a movie for aimed mostly at women in their 50s. You know? That was it, Erica Berry is, you know, a woman in her mid-50s, divorced but successful. She has this beautiful beach house in the Hamptons. It's there, there's an idealized vision there to a degree, but it's also just dealing with the real issues of being that age and kind of thinking your life is going one way, and then something blows it up and takes it in a completely different way. And that's that's a classic rom-com setup. You just don't see it with people that old.
1: So unsurprisingly, this conversation is sprawling and running longer than it's supposed to. But I have to get into one last area with you. By the way, I'm talking to Scott Meslow. Uh, His book is From Hollywood with Love, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of the Romantic Comedy. So perhaps to some people's surprise, one of the people who merits his own chapter or subchapter in your book is John Cusack. Not to my surprise, mind you. I think that's a really great choice. But we're mainly Talking about Say Anything, it can be argued, and I think you do pretty successfully, that Say Anything gross point blank, which we've already talked about, and High Fidelity, and maybe The Sure Thing before any of those constitute kind of an interesting run of romantic comedies. But so what does Cusack bring to this that's unusual?
2: My favorite thing about Cusack in rom-coms is his reluctance to be in (laughs) rom-coms. That is is career long. He has never been a particular fan of the genre. He, the most iconic scene in Say Anything, he did not want to film when he held up the boombox. He was worried it would be cheesy. At this point, Cameron Crowe has credited him with that scene being so iconic because his reluctance is what I think elevates that to the next level. Certainly, that's the case that Cameron Crowe is making, that this guy is almost too cool to be doing what he's doing, which is why it's powerful that he's doing it. But I think after kind of getting put in that box as a you know as a young actor, he made some really weird rom-coms that sort of deconstructed the genre. I think *Gross Point Blank* probably most interestingly because he's playing a sociopathic hitman, but also *High Fidelity*.
3: Well, forgive me if I don't think of you as the world's safest bed. Would
2: you marry me if I was? <laughs> what brought all this on? I don't
3: know. I'm just sick of thinking about it all the time. About what? This stuff, love, and settling down, and marriage you know i want to think about something else i changed my mind that's the most romantic thing i've ever heard i do i will just shut up please i'm just trying to explain okay
2: a movie that kind of ultimately embraces rom-com themes but does so extremely reluctantly with a guy who was very much intended by the people making the film as sort of your kind of classic toxic man child and taking that a little more seriously than than a rom-com that reforms him making him do a little
1: more work That's I think you've put it exactly right. And I think the term Crow uses about the boombox scene is defiant. You know, in some ways Cusack he's doing this thing there's almost something a little bit angry about (laughs) that he's doing this kind of stupid and kind of self abasing thing. But I think it's also there's a way in which I think some of the some of the performances that we remember are performances where actors push themselves into these emotional states that are simultaneously absurd and but also really funny. You know, I mean, I think one of the reasons that we love Keaton and Something's Gotta Give is that scene where she just cries and cries. <laughs> you have one new message. Message one.
3: Erica, hi, it's Julian. I'm in the restaurant and I'm just wondering lovely
1: night out here it's uh, nice <laughs> i remember sitting in a movie theater watching that and thinking man she committed to this <laughs> she committed to crying big time You know, it's like that or this is a little bit outside your time framework. But, you know, in starting over, Candace Bergen just really makes a fool of herself with all her terrible singing. And she's just like so over the top. And she's wonderful because you've never seen Candace Bergen do something like that before. To me, that's like love makes fools of us all. Right. So you can't be as an actor, be afraid to be a fool. Yeah,
2: and it's cathartic, right? If you haven't literally sobbed like like Diane Keaton and something's got to give, like you've probably felt like that. You've probably had a breakup that ripped your heart out. Like it feels validating, <laughs> and I think I think a good rom com will get you there. It's it, the, the fact that it's heightened makes it hit harder.
3: Hold me close and hold me fast. The magic spell you cast. This is La Viongolo. We're
1: going to take a break right now, and then we're going to come back with actually two of our favorite ongoing guests, David Edelstein, America's Greatest Living Film Critic, and Ileana Douglas, the official movie star of The Colin McEnroe Show, will join us to talk about rom-coms. When you press me to your heart,
3: I'm...
1: So, it's always fun if you're going to talk about rom coms to talk to, let's say, somebody who is in rom coms. Joining us today is a friend of the show, Eliana Douglas, movie and television star. Her rom com credentials are impeccable. We can maybe get into them if we have time. And David Edelstein, America's greatest living film critic, is also with us. So, let's just begin with the whole thing. We've been, I should say, we've been emailing about all this stuff a lot. And And if I we're the kind of person who did things like this in a newsletter. I would just publish all the emails because they're so interesting. But, you know, Ileana, we've struggled a little bit about what's a rom-com and what's not. But I feel yes. like we might have come to the conclusion that we shouldn't worry about it too much, as long as it's romantic and it's funny, it's a rom-com.
0: Well, it's, it's transitioned so much over the years. You know, even calling it a rom-com is kind of slightly denigrating, I think. But you go back to the, for me, with the sweet spot of the 1930s, a romantic comedy for me had the elements of opposites attract and a sense of transformation that the two leads sort of change their point of view about love by the end of the movie. That's for me is sort of the biggest thing. It's I mean obviously it's a love story and there's comedy, but I think that it's, you know, they they find true love through finding themselves and there's a transformation.
1: That's a pretty elevated description. I mean, I like it, you know, but I like it a lot. Although, David, has that kind of changed over time? One thing that I brought up as we were discussing this is, you know, probably for in the 30s, 40s and into the 50s, one of the big questions is, are they going to have sex? And I, I feel like maybe you know sometime in the 80s or 90s it's like well everybody's having sex they might have already had sex even that's not the real question the question is is their relationship different than the relationship with other people they've had sex with in the past
3: it wasn't too long ago that the film how to lose a guy in 10 days came out with Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey. And the idea was that this woman was supposed to write a comic magazine story about how to lose a guy in 10 days. But the fact is that because of the mores of, of even the late 90s, early 2000s, she wasn't allowed to sleep with him. She had to drive him off without even having consummated their relationship. It was absurd because guys will put up with anything.
1: (laughs) Well, actually, that that idea is also expressed a little bit by Billy Crystal in in When Harry Met Sally. But let's go further into the past. What we'll slowly work our way back into the past. So, Ileana, on your list of among your favorites is Pillow Talk. Rock Hudson Doris Day, he's kind of a womanizer. He actually is implicitly getting a lot of sex. She lives somewhere near him. They share a party line. They get on each other's nerves. He comes up with this kind of subterfuge way of kind of dating her. And wacky complications ensue. First of all, tell me, what do you like? I mean, a lot of people probably think, eh, Rock Hudson, Doris Day, that's too corny for me. Say why you like it.
0: Well, number one thing a romantic comedy needs, chemistry between the two leads, because you've got to take this enormous leap of faith you know, again, part of the fun is they're inept at seeing what is right in front of them true love. We see it. We know they're perfect for each other, but they don't see it. And they've got to go through all these complications, you know. And but their chemistry, Doris Day and Rock Hudson, obviously very, very playful. Doris Day has a lot of sexuality. You know, in the film, I think with her cute little dresses and clothing is very important. Well, her the
1: hats—the hats are really important.
0: Well, hats in all of these movies. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm going back to Nanachka. Remember, after she has sex with my grandfather, Melvin Douglas Leon, she gets she buys a silly hat. You know, so it connotes that that they have had sex. But I, what I like about Pillow Talk again, he's a womanizer, but he changes. His ways by the end of the movie, again, we have this transformational kind of man there.
1: Right. Well, this is the point that you've been making as we've been discussing this, right, that you think that there might be some kind of continental divide between the time when movies were about that, that people had to change in order to discover their love for one another, to see what's good about one another. And sort of more laterally, more recently, it seems as though it's not really about that anymore because people have no interest in changing.
0: Well that's yeah, that's what, that's my theory about why romantic comedies have kind of, you know, gone out the window is that today Nobody wants to change or is willing to change, and the very act of changing is considered weak. So dating today is about having the same interests. So we both like to go to the see the Red Sox, and we both like cooking, and and so therefore you have no you know you have no conflict, and so part of the fun again of these movies is that. You know, this universal idea that this is what we're all searching for. We're all, you know, we're rooting for love and it causes this unexpected adversity. And it's how everybody handles that adversity that and then we have the cheerleaders, the supporting characters from the other side. But it's how these couples, they're little human foibles are, are they going to get the pot of gold at the, at the end of the movie? And my theory about today is just that there's not much conflict going on. Therefore, it's not really very funny. So they try to come up with a, a premise. Uh, Lose a guy in 10 days. Don't see someone for 40 days. You know, things like that. And it's, they're harder to get behind, I think. There's not as much adversity for them.
1: Right, there's some exceptions to this. Doesn't Nicholson say to Diane Keaton, yeah, "Help me be a better man"? So, you know, maybe he's going to change a, a little bit. I don't, David, what do you think of that theory?
3: I uh, agree with it wholeheartedly and and depressingly as well. <laughs> uh, it's a it's a problem because the whole notion of change has become so political, especially especially yes. for women. I mean, women are being told. Have been told for so many years that they have to adapt they have to change themselves in order to conform to male expectations and to the mores of the day and of course we many of us grew up with bewitched and i dream of genie which were or i love lucy you know in which the whole theme of the show was this untamable zany woman with with kind of magical powers having to be kind of kept in line by an overbearing man And it wasn't always so, but I think Pauline Kael, I remember pointed out that after the Second World War, the refrain of many Hollywood movies and and most rom-coms was that the heroine had to learn that running things isn't feminine. What does it mean to change? You know, when Jack Nicholson says you'll make me a better man, well, we know that that's not going to happen. We know that he's not going to settle down with her for very long. We know that maybe Dustin Hoffman learned to be a better man from impersonating a woman in Tootsie, but we also know that Dustin Hoffman had a reputation as being somewhat of a sexual harasser thereafter. We know that all these old formulas, these old Hollywood formulas, maybe they were never true, maybe we wanted them to be true, but we now see that they they don't have a prayer of being accepted nowadays.
1: So, Ileana, there's a show business anecdote that's probably true where somebody's talking about the idea of Ronald Reagan for president and the movie mogul Jack Warner says, No, Jimmy Stewart for president, Ronald Reagan for best friend. And and within rom coms there is this thing, right, about the friend yes. or or the supporting cast. You've done both. You've been the lead in a rom com, but you've also been the friend. And this is this is kind of a think Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby and when Harry met Sally, you know. Yes. This like a really important thing talk about what the purpose of that role is
0: well the funny friend of course which i didn't to give you an example picture perfect with jennifer aniston usually the funny friend it has to deliver all the plot lines like you know you were with david for five years and he never married you (laughs) so you know (laughs) you got to set up all we have all the hardest lines And then we also have to point out, because again, they're hilariously inept. I have to point out to Jennifer Aniston that Kevin Bacon has a crush on her and, you know, she should probably invite him to that upcoming wedding she has to go to. So, you know, it's, we, we set up the stakes. I mean, when you think of Charles Coburn in The More, The Merrier, that's, to me, is the, is the the best supporting character of all time. You know, fixing up the two leads, but you also, as the supporting character, it's funny because you can't ever. You can't upstage the lead, as I as I learned.
1: (laughs) learned That's right. Go to wardrobe and put on something more drab. So. So. So, David, there's also, I think, a sense in which there's a kind of coloration that goes on with best friends and supporting actors. I mean, Tony Randall is in all three Rock Hudson Doris Day movies. Thelma Ritter is in Pillow Talk as this kind of hilarious, perpetually hungover cleaning lady.
0: First thing you got to do is to get her to talk to you. Right?
1: Right.
0: Really, very simple. You've got an apartment. She decorates
3: apartments.
0: You hire her to do your place. Two people <laughs> decorating an apartment, that's pretty intimate. She's got to talk to you. Clever?
1: Clever. There's sort of a way in which I think the the supporting cast, the ensemble, they keep us from getting sick of the leads too, right? They do, but they also function, as Ileana suggests, they also
3: function as cupids. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes they I'm not speaking of Ileana here, but oftentimes their sexuality is a little ambiguous. Look at yes. David Wayne in Adam's Rib, who is a, uh, a composer of a very sort of Cole Porter-esque and, and is rather fay, and yet he's supposed to be lusting after Catherine Hepburn's Amanda and making Adam jealous. But at the same time, he clearly, he plays an almost a role like Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream. I mean, there's a sort of Shakespearean element to some of these characters. And yeah, sure, they take some of the pressure off the leads. And sometimes there are subordinate couples, you know, also. Sometimes it's not just a friend. Sometimes you get a sort of comic couple you know, a a sort of slob couple to as a counterpoint to the gorgeous couple. And those are just themes and and variations.
1: All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. We're going to come back with more of Ileana Douglas and David Edelstein right after the proverbial this.
3: Farewell, Amanda. Adios. Adio. Adieu.
1: We're talking about rom coms today. Time for me to thank Kat Pastor. I don't even want to know what her favorite rom com is. I know it would just disturb me, but she's our technical producer today. This episode was kind of co produced, I think it's fair to say, by Lily Tyson, our senior producer, and Jonathan McPants. I sense, David, in both you and Ileana, An element of declinism. You know, there's just kind of a sense that, well, we had to maybe recalibrate what we thought a rom-com was. You know, I I think Annie Hall would have surprised people. I I think it's a rom-com, even though they're not together at the end. It clearly is romantic and it's funny and it's a rom-com and it's about relationships. But it just seems with each passing era, some of the tropes and some of the kinds of tensions that propelled a movie like, say, The Lady Eve... They're just not there anymore. And, and does that mean the rom-com is going to go away? Or, David, does the formula just change a lot over time?
3: Oh, I think the tensions that inform something like the Lady Eve are, are eternal. They're permanent. It's not the tensions. The tensions are 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 there, but the the way in which one explores them, the way in which one fantasizes about them, the way in which one gives them, you know, free reign, that's what causes all the the upheaval these days. And that, like I said, that's if we can just give our artists, male and female and everyone else, permission to explore those boundaries, to push those boundaries, and to question some of the, the new codes. We just need people who are going to be, have permission to to push the envelope.
1: Right. It could be argued, actually, not that this is a really new movie, but the Lady Eve and the movie, the Cohen Brothers movie, Intolerable Cruelty, are very similar kinds of movies. It's about like a, a woman who's a little bit ahead or maybe a lot ahead of, of a man on a con. So maybe that tradition and that That reminds me, this.
3: Colin, that, that reminds me, we should at least just quickly say some things that some of the great movies that people should go out and see. The Lady yes. Eve is my favorite movie and anyone who has not seen The Lady Eve, you know, go out, rent it or preferably find somebody screening it.
0: Why don't you look where you're going? Why don't I look? What did you did to my shoe. You knocked the heel off.
2: Oh, I did? Well, I'm certainly sorry. you
0: didn't, you can just take me right down to my cabin for another pair of slippers.
2: Oh, well, certainly I guess it's the least I can do. By the way, my name's Pike. Oh, everybody
0: knows that. Nobody's talking about anything else. This is my father, Colonel Harrington. My name is Gene. It's really Eugenia. Come on.
3: And go back and, and look at Trouble in Paradise, Midnight, The Awful Truth, The Shop Around the Corner. I hardly need to be a, a proselytizer for that. The Philadelphia story, His Girl Friday, which took probably the greatest farce ever written in this country, the front page, and made it even better by turning it into a rom-com with Rosalind Russell and Cary Grant. Yeah, so I wish you hadn't done that, Hilly. Done what? Divorce me. Makes a father lose all faith in himself. Gives him a... Almost gives him a feeling he wasn't wanted. Oh,
0: now, look, Junior, that's what divorces are for.
3: Nonsense.
0: You've got an old-fashioned idea. Divorce is something that lasts forever. Till death do us part. Why, divorce doesn't mean anything nowadays, Hildy. Just a few words, mumbled over you by a judge. We've got something
3: between us. Nothing can change. I mean, Clooney Brown, Iliana, and I were talking about before. Nanatchka, the, the Lubitsch films. You know, there's just a there's a whole world out there to explore.
0: Yeah, Yeah, Ninochka, I mean, broke every political taboo. To me, that is the craziest rom-com ever. Must you flirt? I don't have to, but I find it natural. Suppress it. I'll try. For my own information, would you call your approach toward me typical of the local morale?
3: Mademoiselle, it is that approach which has made Paris what it is. You're very sure of
0: yourself, aren't you?
3: (laughs) Well, nothing's happened recently to shake my self-confidence.
0: I have heard of the arrogant male in capitalistic society. It is having a superior earning power that makes you that way. A Russian. I love Russians. You have a woman who is a communist who falls in love with a shallow playboy who's living off of his rich girlfriend. And because she falls in love, she... You know, really, she gives up being a communist. (laughs) And, you know, I I was thinking, would that ever happen today if a Trumper, you know, fell in love with a Dem? Would would the Trumper soften because they fell in love? I mean, the the whole part of that seems screwy, like that people wouldn't be able to do that. But the movie works because you've got this colorless communist who falls in love and lets her guard down and falls in love, and that is her transformation. And again, I go back to the same thing, that change and transformation, and people are so embarrassed to have feelings or to show that they desire someone on screen, that that is somehow perceived as a weakness. That's what we need to single out, is it's not the code of conduct, it's the code of feelings. Are we so embarrassed to demonstrate our feelings you don't have to touch someone but just show your desire on screen and that's what i feel is missing in movies today
1: well you can't come up with a better ending to this episode than that i'm going to show my feelings and say i love you both very much Ileana douglas <laughs> a movie star and tv star i Dave, love you too david edelstein is america's greatest yeah, me, living me, me, critic me, me too you <laughs> know all right good you good Hugh grand impersonation david we have to go thanks very much for listening